you are one brave guy, you know. <laughs> Years ago, Pastor Jerry was here doing a baby dedication, and in those days we were the suit and tie crowd, and um, he was holding the baby, and the baby got a hold of the short end of his tie <laughs> and started hanging on it. And uh, it, it tightened around his neck, and, and so the oxygen levels were de- being depleted, which is one way to cut a prayer short, you know. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. The 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel is what we could call the continental divide of this book. The continental divide. And, and the continental divide, just to sort of refresh your, your uh, memory of geography, is a series of mountain ranges that runs from the Bering Strait in, in Alaska all the way down to the Strait of Magellan at the tip of South America. It's an interconnected set of mountain ranges that form a ridge that runs like a, like a backbone the entire length of the North and South American continents. And what's so important about the Continental Divide is that it forms the, the, the point of the watershed runoff on the, on the two continents of North and South America. That is, that all storm fronts that, that bump against this Continental Divide deposit their precipitation in either an eastern or a western direction. It never flows over. And so the water that runs off runs in one of two directions and ultimately finds its way into either the Pacific or the Atlantic Oceans, the Continental Divide. And this 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel forms uh, uh, that kind of an idea. It serves that similar function of a continental divide because it is the, it is the place and point in the narrative of the gospel and which the, the narrative flows in one of two directions. There's a, there's a major place here where, where the, the action changes. And prior to Matthew chapter 11, basically the uh, the account of Jesus here is, is that he is optimistically preaching among the, the cities of Israel, and in particular Galilee, and he's performing all kinds of miracles. And everything looks pretty good. It's, it's as it were, things are in the upward direction. But, but here we, we hit this divide point, and from here on out, the gospel takes a pretty dramatic turn, and things begin to get sort of grim until we arrive at the end of the gospel, of course, and the crucifixion of Israel's Messiah. And it's here in this chapter that, that Jesus' response to the people changes. As I said, prior to this, has been sort of an optimistic kind of approach, but it's here that he, he begins to speak terms of judgment upon the nation. And it is here in verses 25 to to 30 at the end of chapter 11 where he actually begins to call people out of that nation to, to turn and to flee from the wrath to come upon their own people. So this is a very, very important turning point 
the entire structure of Matthew's gospel. So we've been working at it here for a couple of weeks, and, uh, and Lord willing, we're going to finish at least uh, a sizable section of it this morning. And we've been doing it by looking at a series of questions. Israel has misunderstood her Messiah. That's the basic thrust of it. But there's a series of questions that, that sort of explore that theme. And there are, well, there were three of them until this week, and then I added a fourth, so there are now four uh, questions, and there's a little bit of editorial freedom in uh, being able to do that. So there are now four questions that arise because of Israel's misunderstanding of her Messiah. And what I want to do with you this morning is I'm just going to briefly uh, review the first two questions because we've labored away at them for the past two weeks. And if you're interested in exploring that in more detail, you certainly can go online and, and find the uh, sermons, the video sermons. But uh, this morning we'll spend more time focusing on the third and the fourth of the questions. But there are four questions. That's the basic structure. So let's begin here. And just the first question, uh, as a point of review, question number one is... Jesus the one? That's the first question. Is Jesus the one? We pick it up here in chapter 11 and verse 2. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So the first question has to do with the identity of Messiah, and it's it's a question that's actually voiced by John the Baptist himself. Now John, the the forerunner of Messiah, at this point, Uh, point has been imprisoned. He's been in prison now for over a year, and he's having some doubts. He's troubled. He's he's having trouble putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Things are not working out as he expected. Messiah is not uh, doing, if I can say it this way, the things that he thought he would do. Here's John, now in prison, He had been preaching a message of repentance and judgment and warning the nation that that the the wrath is right at hand and and the Messiah's kingdom that that follows that wrath is, is closely at hand as well and the nation needs to repent and turn and receive their Messiah. But now, instead of the repentance and the receiving of the kingdom, instead, here's Messiah's forerunner in jail. And it seems like the world is topsy turvy, the world is upside down. Evil seems to be getting the upper hand, and instead of judgment upon the wicked, it appears very much like the wicked are prospering. The the wicked are being able to live with impunity. And the Messiah himself is is not exactly doing the kinds of things that, that John expected of him. Where is the judgment that he had been prophesying? Where is the where is the judgment that is to precede this coming kingdom? Instead, what happens is, is Jesus is moving around and he's teaching and he's, he's violating the various religious taboos of Judaism. He's eating with sinners and tax gatherers. And it just seems like there's not a sense of an urgency that, that John thought there ought to be. So he has questions. 
And he sends his disciples to, to ask, are you really the one? Or, or are you a forerunner like I am? And should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus' answer to John through his disciples is to point John back to the Scriptures. To point him back to the Scriptures. Jesus directs John to, to take stock of the miracles and to weigh them against the Word of God and that which it had prophesied, and you can see it there in verse 5, that which it had prophesied about the coming Messiah's kingdom. And John, take a look at what you see, weigh it against the Word of God, and arrive at the right conclusion. Yes, I am the one. Even though it's not working out exactly the way you thought it would, I am the one. And John, do not waver in your faith. That takes us to the second question that arises here, and that's in verses 7 through 15. And the question here, we looked at it in quite a bit of detail last week, and that is, well, who is John then? Who is John? And who, the answer to that question of who is John is, is very, very important to the identity of Messiah. Because the two of them are, are inextricably linked together. To understand who John is is to understand Messiah. And so Jesus has a very much a vested interest in, a pro, in people having a proper understanding of John. Now, the prophet Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, finished his book, put his pen down, 400 years prior to this. And from the time Malachi put his, his pen down, God ceased speaking to his ancient people through prophecy. They were silent. It was the silent years. And then arrives John the Baptist on the scene. After four centuries of silence, this very strange, this very odd fellow who dresses in a, in a strange way, whose, whose behavior is, is very different, and who by his dress and behavior sort of conjures up the images of the ancient prophet Elijah. And he begins to speak to the people. And the people respond. They, they flood out to hear his message. Verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, in one who is more than a prophet. We noted last time, it, it's amazing that God speaks through men in any context. And it's certainly amazing after 400 years of silence that God would have begun to speak again. And so the, the very fact that God has sent a prophet to his ancient people again in the form of John the Baptist is, is certainly an amazing thing, but it's more amazing in what Jesus says about this particular prophet in that he is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus provides a series of reasons here, actually three of them, why John the Baptist, he says, is the greatest of all the prophets. And the first of those reasons is given in, in verses 10, 11, and 13. And it is simply this. It's because John is the forerunner to Messiah and his kingdom. 
This is the one, Jesus says, about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Four centuries earlier, when Malachi had written, and in particular in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4, Malachi had spoke, had written to the people and told them that there would be a coming day. A day of great judgment, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that, and that judgment would be, would be followed by a kingdom, Messiah's kingdom. And Jesus says here that, that John is the one the prophet was talking about. He is the forerunner. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy about the coming Messiah. He is the one who points to the Messianic king. And that makes him the greatest of all the prophets. Prior to this, the Old Testament prophets said, there's a coming one, there's a coming one, there's a coming one. Get ready for him. John says, that's the one. That's the one. And that makes him the greatest of all of the prophets. Further, Jesus goes on to say that John is the greatest of all the prophets because his message was so violently opposed by Israel's leadership. You see that in verse 12 where he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. When John arrived on the scene, when John began to his, his message of announcing the nearness of, king, of the kingdom, rather than repent, Israel's leaders dug in their heels and they began to violently oppose John and to violently oppose John's message of the coming one. And that opposition would, would crystallize and harden to the place that they would actually call for the crucifixion of their own king. Jesus says that the, the leaders of the nation, here in verse 12, are violent men. And these violent men are attempting in the, into the maintaining of their own status quo, their own power base, their own position their own religious system that they have built, they are willing to go to any and all lengths to do it, including killing their own king. They are desperate. They are desperate to prevent Messiah from coming. Violent men. Third, Jesus says that John is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Messiah, verses 14, of Elijah rather, in verses 14 and 15. He says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that's an interesting statement. That's an interesting statement. It takes us back into the the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 4 and and verses 5 and 6, where the prophet, again speaking 400 years prior to this, says there's, there's one coming, and that one is Elijah, the ancient prophet. He's coming back. He, he is going to be the one who will precede the kingdom. Malachi writes it this way, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers so that I will not smite the land with a curse. And so for four centuries... 
the nation has longed for the return of Elijah. They have been waiting for the return of Elijah. Because when he comes, it will signal that the kingdom is close at hand, right behind him. And Jesus makes this amazing statement here in verse 14. He says, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. That is, that if you, people of Israel, the the nation of Israel, if you are willing to heed his message, if you are willing to turn to receive your king, then John himself will be that long-promised Elijah. As we learned last time in Matthew chapter 17, they did not turn to receive their king, did they? And in fact, what they did to the coming Elijah was to have him killed, and, and thus the kingdom has been drawn away from them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The kingdom was that close, and now it's been drawn away. Will Elijah come again? The prophecy of Malachi has yet to be fulfilled, so the answer is yes. Elijah will come again. And if we we won't go there, but last time I suggested to you that I think there's a high likelihood that one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 is the one who fulfills that Elijah prophecy prior to the second coming of the king. So, is Jesus the one? Who is John? And the third question, and this is where we'll start to get a little more serious with, the, with it. Why were they rejected? Why were they rejected? Who is Jesus? Who is John? And why were they rejected? That's our third question, and it's, and it's a good question to ask. In fact, it's, a, it's the question that was on the lips of, of every believing Jew. Those who had come to know Messiah, to whom Matthew is writing, would have, a, would have an honest question. And they would say, well, why did the nation refuse their king? When it was so obvious and apparent that he was the one. How come the nation turned their backs on them? And the answer is a simple one, actually. The answer of why they turned their backs on Jesus and John is because they didn't want what was being offered them. They were not interested in the coming kingdom on the terms in which it was being offered. Did they want the kingdom? Yes. But they wanted it on their terms and not God's. Verse 16. Jesus said, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This is Jesus' first recorded rebuke of the nation. The hardness has been growing. It it has become more and more apparent. And, And to the reader of Matthew's gospel, you've begun to get an inkling of where this thing is going. But this is the first time that Jesus openly rebukes his countrymen. And he does it in an interesting way. He he compares this generation of Israelites to spoiled and bratty children. 
Spoiled and, and bratty children who, who are sitting around in a marketplace and, and criticizing the other children for being unwilling to play their childish games. He said, that's what you're like. You're like a bunch of spoiled brats. Now, the game that that's, uh, he's referring to here is, is, uh, was a common sort of game that children would play. And it, and it basically went like this. At, at weddings, the, the men would typically do the dancing. And at funerals, the, the women would typically do the mourning. And so, uh, you know, the weeping and the wailing and so forth. And so there was, uh, as uh, our kids today play sort of dress up, right? They, they try to act like adults. Well, the same thing happened back then. And so the way they would try to act like adults is they would, they would say, let's play the wedding game. We want to play the wedding game. Well, what's the wedding game? Well, the wedding game is, is we dance and we, and we party and we have fun. And the other group of kids says, I don't want to play the wedding game. I, you know, I want to play the funeral game. Well, what's the funeral game? Well, in the funeral game, we, we weep and we, we wail. And, and you've heard this, you know, some of those Middle Eastern women, they do this thing with their tongue and they get that, that echo thing going. So we want to play that game. And the, other, and the first group of kids said, we don't want to play that game. No, 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 we want to play the wedding game. No, 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 we want to play the funeral game. And so it's back and forth, back and forth, each group criticizing the other group because they won't play their game. And Jesus says to, this, to his contemporaries, to the generation of Israelites alive at that time, you are just like those kids. You are just like those kids. You are not satisfied. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus applies the the. the, the the criticism of the, or the observation, probably a better way to say it, of, of these bratty children to the people of that generation. And he says, you're just like them. And basically what he says is, is John and his ministry is like those people who won't dance. They're, they're the won't dance crowd. That's John's ministry. And, and, and Jesus' ministry is the, is the don't mourn crowd. So I have the won't dance crowd and I have the don't and I have the won't cry crowd. And he says that's exactly the way you are responding to John and I. You don't like John, he's too strict for you. John's too strict because he requires repentance. And so you criticize him over that. He's the he's the won't dance guy. And you criticize me because I'm too gracious. I'm too gracious. I receive sinners who repent, and so you don't like that either. You don't like John? He's too strict. You don't like me? I'm too gracious. The underlying assumption is is that you really don't want the kingdom because you don't feel the need for it. You're satisfied with where you are. You don't feel the need to repent. And so when John comes to you and says, repent, you say, get out of here. And then when I come and I, and I receive sinners who have repented, you say, look at that guy. Look at the kind of people he hangs around with. Because you see, you, you, you don't think they ever 
could, could achieve your level of righteousness. You're self-satisfied. You're smug. You've, you've created your own religious system, and, and you don't want anybody to mess with it. And particularly, you don't want God to mess with it. Why doesn't Israel receive John and Jesus? Simply put, they're self-satisfied. They've got what they want, and they don't want what God is offering. Yet Jesus says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, meaning in the end, you will find out how wrong you were. How wrong you were. Beloved, we can fall into the same trap. We can fall into exactly the same kind of trap. We set up an image in our mind of of what God is like and and how God should act uh, towards us. And when you do that, you are going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed because, because God doesn't come to fulfill your dreams. God is not here to, to fulfill your idea of what he is like and how he should respond and, and what he should do. God is here to explode your box. God is here to, to blow up your, your conception and your image of him because God wants you to know him as he is, not as how you would like him to be. And unless we are, we are willing to, to recognize that reality and to, and to go to the Word of God, to know God for who He really is and not who we would like Him to be, then we too will miss His kingdom. We'll miss His kingdom just like that generation. We can be just as smug, just as self-satisfied, just as, as um, content in our own form of righteousness, our own little religious box that we've constructed in which we don't need to repent and we look at others who don't live up to our box and we say God would never take them because they're not like me. And Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. If that is your orientation, you will miss the kingdom. You will miss the kingdom. Why did they reject John and Jesus? He wasn't offering what they were interested in. He was offering the truth, and they would rather have a lie. And that takes us to the fourth question. The fourth question, what will be the consequences of their rejection? What will be the consequences of their rejection? Can you you reject Christ with impunity? What happens when you tell Jesus, I'm not interested in what you have to offer? Quite satisfied with my own religious system. I think I'm doing fine. You know, me and the big man up there, we're okay. You know, we're like this. What will be the result of that kind of an approach? Verses 20 to 24 are some of the most frightening verses to be found, I think, in the New Testament. Some of the most frightening verses to be found in the New Testament. This is the continental divide. If you you want to locate it in the chapter, it would be between verse 19 and 20. In fact, the, uh, the late Donald Gray Barnhouse 
writing on this particular section, says the following, and I, I quote him here. Those who really wish to know their Bible should see that we are in new country from this verse forward. Draw a thick black line between the 19th and 20th verses. There is a great divide here. Now you know where I got the idea, right? Truth flows down to opposite oceans from this point. We are face to face with a new aspect of the work of Christ. The Lord Jesus was henceforth a different man in his action and in his speech. The one who was the meek and lowly Jesus was about to exhibit his strong wrath in no uncertain way. Verse 20. Then he began. Do you see that? Then he began. Something new happens here. Something that had not occurred prior to this time. It is from this point forward that Jesus began to change the way he interacted with his nation. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Matthew has revealed to us in the verses just previously why the nation rejected him. Now Jesus speaks here about the the consequences of that rejection. And he focuses it in particular upon the cities of Galilee. And what is so significant about that is that it is in the cities of Galilee, around the, the Sea of Galilee, in particular the kind of the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has spent most of his public ministry. This is the place where they have received the greatest evidence of the Messiah. They have seen the most miracles. They have heard the most sermons. They have flocked out. They have been fed. They have had the dead raised. They have had the lepers cleansed. They have the deaf has been made to hear. The blind has been given their sight. All kinds of incredible miracles, storms that have been stilled. And yet, and yet they don't believe. They are indifferent. They are indifferent. The obvious reality of Messiah, his miracles, and his message has not penetrated their hearts. Instead, it has revealed that their hearts are profoundly hard, profoundly cold. There is a a spiritual lethargy that exceeds, and this is, I think, one of the most frightening things that he says here. There There is a spiritual deadness here that exceeds that of history's most ancient and wicked of heathen cities. 750 years prior to this, the prophet Isaiah had written of the people in Galilee, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, that those who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land, in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And yet the reality is the sad reality that when the light shone on them, they 
preferred the darkness to the light because their deeds were evil. It's incredible. Verse 21, woe to you. Woe to you. It's a term of of judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Wow. The cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida were two of the places there near the Sea of Galilee in which Jesus did many miracles in which he spent a fair amount of time ministering. In fact, Bethsaida himself is the hometown, itself is the hometown of Philip and Andrew and Peter. Jesus had spent quite a bit of time there. In contrast, Tyre and Sidon are, are seaport cities on the Mediterranean. And they were originally founded by the, the ancient Phoenicians. And they were known throughout the history of the nation of Israel as being cities that were morally bankrupt, wicked. And in which Baal worship was firmly established. They were heathen cities. They were wicked cities. They were everything that was the opposite of what the people of Israel stood for. So it's stunning. It is absolutely stunning that Jesus compares the cities of Galilee unfavorably to these pagan cities. Now I thought about trying to really apply this text by trying to figure out a way that I could insult you at the same level. But I wanted to keep my job. No, I actually I couldn't think of I couldn't think of a contrast as as strong as that. You think of the worst, most vile place that you can think of. And the contrast is still not as as sharp as what Jesus says here. Listen. These are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are are the ones to whom came the oracles of God. These are the ones to whom God sent his prophets repeatedly. These are the ones who had the Mosaic covenant. They knew the true God. It was the Gentiles, it was the pagans who were outside of the covenant, without hope in the world, destined for the lake of fire. And Jesus says, listen to me. Listen to me. If those pagans had seen what you have seen, they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes. They would have repented. They would be part of the kingdom. Can't help but think of the prophet Jonah's preaching to the ancient city of Nineveh, remember? When the people of Israel won't repent at the repeated messages of the prophets, God sends Jonah to the ancient and pagan city of Nineveh. And Jonah preaches a message of of judgment there, right? And what does the, the city do? 
Starting at the king all the way down, in sackcloth and ashes, they repent and and call on God to be merciful to them. Jesus says, if I'd have spent my time in Tyre and Sidon, like I spent in Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have repented. They would have repented. Nevertheless, verse 22, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Not only would they have repented, but when the judgment arrives, this wicked, Baal-worshipping pagan city will be better off than these two cities of Galilee. Galilee will be more severely punished in the coming judgment. And when he talks about cities being punished, we need to understand he's talking about residents of the cities, right? It's not the houses that get punished. It is those who live in these cities. Those of you who live in Galilee, who have seen, have tasted, and have refused. It will be worse off for you in the judgment than the pagans who wanted no part of me. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Wow. Capernaum was the place of Jesus' headquarters. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 tells us, Jesus, when he, he came back up into Galilee... After he heard of the arrest of John the Baptist, he he established his headquarters for ministry in Capernaum. In Capernaum. The residents of the city of Capernaum were witness to more miracles, more sermons than anyone else. Than anyone else. They had seen it all. Yet in their spiritual pride and and their trust in their own religion of pharisaical self-righteousness, they wanted nothing to do with the king. They were blind to the Messiah. And they were blind to the Messiah's forerunner. He's too strict. You're too lenient. We don't want either of you. Unless, of course, we're hungry. And then go ahead, do that thing with the fish and the bread again, will you? Wow. Nevertheless, verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Shocking. Maybe one of the most shocking statements in the entire Bible. Sodom. It is infamous. For wickedness. Throughout history, both religious and secular history, Sodom is what is spoken of when 
to describe the, the most vile wickedness. The name has, has even become associated with incredibly vile, wicked sexual practices. If there was ever a city given over to unbelief, if there was ever a city given over to, to wickedness, it's the city of Sodom. It was so wicked that, that it was, its moral outcry rose up to heaven and God sent angels to destroy the city. Could not even find ten righteous men. He would have spared it. Genesis 19 tells us that he rained upon it fire and brimstone and it was entirely destroyed and most believe now that it lies beneath the waters of the Dead Sea. It's interesting here, by the way, in verse 24. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment. What's interesting about that to me is it's It's saying that Sodom is going to be in a day of judgment. That God's judgment on Sodom when he he destroyed the city and all of its residents and inhabitants, men, women, children, animals, everything, was not the real judgment. It was merely a down payment, a, a precursor of the judgment to come. There is a day of judgment coming. A day of judgment. It's future. The judgment that Jesus is speaking of here is we find with with further revelation, and we find it in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, it is the judgment of the great white throne. It is that time still distant when God will raise from the dead all those who have rejected him from Cain on. And they'll be judged for the deeds that they have done. And they will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable at that judgment for Sodom than it will be for the Jewish city of Capernaum. John MacArthur writes the following on this, commenting on this. He says, Capernaum exceeded Chorazin and Bethsaida in privilege, and Sodom exceeded Tyre and Sidon in wickedness. In these striking and sobering contrasts, Jesus makes plain that people who are the most blessed by God will receive the worst punishment if they reject him. I think that's what's so sobering about this. So sobering. Indifference is an incredible insult to God. God would rather that you shake your fist in his face and and argue that he doesn't exist And to simply ignore him. And to simply ignore him. 
Because to ignore him is to say that he's not even worth arguing about. I think there's some incredible insights in this last section here. and Insights into the nature of God. Three of them. I'll leave you with these. First, the judge has knowledge of contingent things. That is, that, that he knows that under different circumstances, outcomes would be different. That's astounding. That statement, listen, if Tyre and Sidon had witnessed what you have witnessed, they would have repented and believed. That's an amazing statement about what God knows, about what actually has happened, and about what would have happened had he ordered circumstances differently. And that takes us to the second, and it's related, amazing insight, and that is that the judge determines how much revelation he will give prior to the judgment. He determined how much revelation Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum would receive. How much truth would come to them. He determined how much Tyre and Sidon would receive. How much Sodom would receive. I told you, the cities are the residents. God determines how much light He will reveal to each and every person. Third, the judge punishes based on neglected opportunity. He punishes on the basis of neglected opportunity. Said another way, there are degrees of punishment. Degrees of punishment. The more you know, the more you're accountable for what you know. And the, and the more you ignore what you are that you know, the greater will be your condemnation. If you have no desire for Jesus Christ, you should get up right now and walk out the door. Because by being here, week in and week out, with the scriptures open and continually to hear and to hear and to hear the truth and to put your fingers in your ears does nothing but ratchet up your accountability. That's a pretty sobering thought. Pretty sobering thought. The gospel is good news, the word means good news. But it's only good news to those who believe it. To those who reject it, it is the absolute worst news possible. Because what it means is that if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing left for you. Nothing. And the longer you hear it and harden yourself against it, 
the more serious will be your judgment. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that in the day of salvation, do not harden your heart. And then he says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true for all of us. Today is the day. Beloved, I, I fear for this country. I fear for this country. There is no nation in the history of the world other than Israel itself that has had greater access to the truth of God. The Bible is the most popular book still in our culture. It is widely available. It can be found in every place. You don't have to look hard for it. You have the truth of God right there. And as a nation, we go, couldn't be bothered. Could not be bothered. Listen. If fierce wrath and judgment will come upon those cities of Galilee, what will come upon this country? What will come upon your neighbors, your family members, your co-workers who know the truth and refuse it? It's a sober, sober thought. Christianity is not optional. It is mandatory. We live in a country in which we have a freedom of religion. Our Constitution says you can believe whatever you want or nothing at all, right? And I'm glad, by the way, that we live in such a nation. But God didn't write that Constitution. God never says you can believe whatever you want or nothing at all. God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. May God grant you the grace to do so. Let's pray. Father, heavy, heavy, heavy message. Sobering truth. Frightening truth. Countercultural truth. We live in a day and an age where people Say, that's fine for you. Keep your religion to yourself. Make it a private thing. And yet, our Father, you refuse for it to be a private thing. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. May your Spirit search our hearts. May He reveal our unbelief. May he show us where we have constructed an idol, a false picture of who you really are and what you require. And may he explode that box. Help us to know and love you for who you really are. Pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.